All right. Romans chapter 13. As we go through these last several chapters in Romans, we're looking at Christian conduct, Christian action, the things that ought to be true of us in our daily lives as believers. As a believer in Jesus Christ, it is not acceptable for me or for anyone, any one of us to sit around and do nothing, not serving, not loving, not obeying the commands of God. And even more so, it's not acceptable for me to live my life like I am still part of the world. When I came to the point in my life where I put my faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, I was baptized by the Spirit into Jesus Christ. That means that I died with Him, I rose with Him, and I am now identified with Him in my new life. My sins, my flesh, the things that identified me along with the course of this world, those things no longer have hold over me. The only hold that they have is what I determine to give them. When I turn my attention away from the Lord, and I place myself under their will once again. This is a picture of the believer in sin. This is what Paul warned us about at the very beginning of this section, when he told us as believers, do not be conformed to this world. Our natural state is not of this world any longer. However, we saw Paul warning us not to make ourselves look like the world, not to make ourselves molded to the world, not to take a person who is a representative, an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and make them blend into this world that stands against everything that Jesus Christ stands for. That's what believers do when we fall into sin. We take that which belongs to God, now that that God owns it is a part of him and we use it to serve either ourselves or we use it to serve the world and that's not what we ought to do as paul told us in verse 1 of chapter 12 we are to be living sacrifices to our lord giving these bodies over to him completely for service to him and no longer living for ourselves So how should we be living instead? Well, he continued on then in verse 2 of chapter 12. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As believers, we are to live differently. We shouldn't fit in with the world. There should be something different about us than the rest of the world. There is a transformation that is taking place in us daily, continually, that process of sanctification where we are continually being grown, being matured into the very image of Christ himself. This is the picture of what should be going on in our lives, the transformation from the inside out. As we learn from God's word, as we submit ourselves to God in prayer, as we continue to understand more and more about the things of God, then our actions will show that we truly belong to him. There will be evidence of our new life in Christ. The way we utilize our spiritual gifts will not be a burden to us. It will be a joy and a pleasure to serve him. Our love for one another, the way that we sacrificially give of ourselves to each other will be genuine and will not be a put on hypocritical act. We will give preference to each other and not to ourselves. We will truly rejoice with someone when they are rejoicing, and we will weep with them when they're weeping. We will submit to those whom God has placed in authority over us, not because we're afraid of them, but because we honor the God who put them in that position. We will see ourselves as being debtors, owing a love of action to everyone around us. These are just some of the characteristics that the Spirit-filled life of a life that truly belongs to God, that has truly presented itself as a living and holy sacrifice. There will be a difference between the way that we live and the way that those in the world around us live. As we come to the end of chapter 13, Paul is going to give us some motivation to live these things out in our lives. Most Christians would agree that these things that we've seen so far, and hopefully as we look through this list, We would agree that the things that we've seen so far in these chapters are things that we should be doing. 
should be part of our lives. But most Christians would probably also agree that some of the things on the list are just difficult for us to do. Anytime you look at lists of things in Scripture that that we're commanded to do, sometimes you go through there and you think, well, that one's not a problem, that one's not a problem, that one's not a problem. Ooh, there's one that I just, that one's hard for me. And those things are not always the same for everyone. And if we're honest, we admit that there's some things that we're just not very good at when we look at those things. And it's really not a priority for us to improve on them sometimes. Sometimes we might look at some of those things and we say, you know what, I've got most of these things down, but I'm not really hospitable. But, you know, I've never really had a desire to be. That's just not me. Or we might say, you know, I'm not a giver. Or I'm not really much into prayer. And maybe sometimes we use the excuse, we say, I'm, not, I'm just not wired that way. So I'm kind of a hothead when it comes to those that, are, that wrong me. And that's just the way that I am. So, you know, most of those things I can do with ease. But, you know, that one, it's just, that's just the way it is. And we don't see that they really have any motivation to really improve on every area. Well, there is motivation. There is a reason why we ought to be having all of these things true in our lives. And the reason is because the believers are on, we're living on the brink of the return of Jesus Christ. Events in the world around us are moving closer to the time of Jesus' return. God is using events on a daily daily basis to bring us closer to that time. And we've probably all been reminded of that more and more in this last week when we've seen the events, things going on over in Israel, more than we ever have before. And I'm not saying that it will be next week when Christ returns or even next year, but what I'm saying is that as we are moving closer and closer every day to the return of Christ, we just need to be reminded of that. There is nothing that needs to take place from a biblical perspective before God's plan of Christ returning for the rapture of his church and therefore ushering in that final 70th week of Daniel when the, that will end with the return of the king to establish his kingdom. The events that start that could happen at any time. When it comes to motivation, when it comes to right living, to doing what we ought to do, the question that each of us should ask ourselves is this. If we knew for certain that Jesus Christ was going to return by, say, noon tomorrow, is there anything in your life that you would change? Is there anything in your life that you would do differently knowing that he was coming at that certain time? And I'm not predicting a time that he's coming, but just if you knew that. And if there is, then what is stopping us from making that change now? Is there anything that you aren't doing or haven't done that you should be doing? Well, I've been meaning to do more of this. I've been meaning to pray more for others. I've been meaning to show love to my neighbors. I've been meaning to read my Bible more, witnessing to my friends, my family, my coworkers. Any of those types of things. And is there anything that you are doing or maybe planning on doing that you know that you shouldn't do? Sins in your life, inappropriate relationships or behaviors, attitudes or actions. As believers, we all know that Christ is coming again. We have seen already in the book of Romans that we are anxiously anticipating his return because that is where our future hope lies. But sometimes we get complacent about it. We find that we really aren't expecting him to to return at any time. We instead think, well, you know, the return of Christ, that's in the future, right? That's a ways off. I have time to get my life together. Time to take care of those little things that I've been putting off. I could take care of it today, but maybe I'll do it tomorrow. But in these last verses of chapter 13, Paul tells us that we should be living as if that day is today. Because he says in verse 11, Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. 
do this relates back to what was said before. Just finished talking about the love that we are to have towards our neighbor, that sacrificial, agape love of action that we talked about. And remember, that was on the trail end of and all-encompassing all of the characteristics that we have been seeing relating to the to having a life lived sacrificially for our Lord. All that we've seen from chapter 12 through chapter 13. It is this that we are to do, these things that we are to do, knowing the time. And there's an assumption made here that we know the time. What's he talking about? The time. He's not talking about as in the time of day, but as in an era or the age that we live in. And Paul writes this with the assumption that we understand the reality of the situation that we live in today, in this age, as believers of Jesus Christ. What is the reality? The reality is that we live in a time that's referred to as the last days. The time period that takes place between the two comings of Jesus Christ to earth. He already came once, and now we're anticipating his return. And I mentioned earlier that this time, that during this time that we live in, there is nothing more that needs to occur before Christ returns again. For us, his children in the church who have come to believe in him now, who are imminently awaiting his return at the rapture, where he will come in the clouds and we will be caught up in the air with him. That's the next event that will occur for us as those in the church. That's, this is his next appearing, but it is not his final appearing, because after that happens, around seven years after that, he will return to earth to establish his earthly kingdom. So this is the time that we are living in today. We are anxiously awaiting those events to happen. Obviously, God chose to take Paul home first. Paul was sitting here writing about these things, saying that this is, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is what we need to be anticipating. Paul didn't see it. It didn't happen in Paul's day. For us, that may be true as well. We may all die physical deaths before Christ returns again and be with him in his presence prior to that time. But the point is that, there again, there's nothing stopping him from returning this afternoon. There's nothing stopping him from returning before we even finish this lesson. It is in light of this fact that we are expecting him that we should be conducting ourselves appropriately. This is the time. And he goes on to say why this matters, what this should mean for us. He says that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Already. This word here brings a sense of urgency to it. As if we were already late for something. It's not something to think about. It's something to act upon now. It's not something to say, well, again, I'll get to that tomorrow. It's something to act upon now. And what we are to do is awaken from sleep, he says. And the word for sleep here, it just means it's a lack of alertness. It's being unaware of what is going on around us. And we all understand that when we're asleep, right? We have no idea what happened. I fall asleep. I wake up. Seven hours have gone by. I have no idea what happened to those seven hours. What do we see here? We see here that Paul is concerned about the attentiveness of those that he's writing to. Right? There's, a, there, there's, a, there's an alertness that they need to have, that they need to be aware of. The reality of our situation is that we are to be awake now. Not at some point down the road, but now. Not after we hit the snooze button a few times, right? We all like to, well, I know we all do, I do, like to hit the snooze button a couple times when the alarm goes off, right? And we get the picture here. I was, I was, I was given an object lesson this morning, um, unexpectedly, but it worked out very well for me. Um, our, our daughter was not awake when I got up this morning. And normally she's awake getting ready for, getting ready for church, and she wasn't awake. Well, we had to go and knock on our door. I, Jenny knocked on her door. I did knock on her door. Jenny had to go and knock on her door, right? What are you doing still in bed? You're late for church, right? You're going to be late for church, right? There was that sense of she was asleep when she should have been awake. 
Well, you understand what that's like, right? Somebody has to wake you up. When you wake up, you're completely out of it. You have no idea what's going on, but now you're scrambling because you're getting ready because you're late, right? Because you know that you should have been awake when you were caught sleeping, when you should have been up and alert. Well, here's that same picture. Paul's not saying that we never sleep. He never says that we never have a nap, but it's, it's time to be alert and awake when it comes to the time that he's talking about, this time that we're living in, when it comes to all that's going on in the world around us, we need to have that alertness. We are to be living in anticipation of our Lord's return. Living in preparation as well, making sure that we're doing what it is that we need to be doing now, today. There's no time to waste. Every day that goes by is a day that we do not get back. It's a day that we spent living for ourselves and not for our Lord. If we wasted a day, if we spent that day asleep. Turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul has some of these things to say to the Thessalonians as well. You see in the first few verses of 1 Thessalonians 5 that Paul talks about the imminency of Christ's coming. In verse 2, he talks about the Lord's coming like a thief in the night. How does a thief come in? Right? We all understand how a thief comes in. He doesn't come knocking on the door. Right? He comes in as, as a surprise. Right? He comes in the night because in the night you're asleep and he'll catch you unaware. That's how a thief comes in. So he catches you sleeping. Well, look at what he says in verse 3. He says, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. And the picture here is of those who are caught unaware, right? Those who will be caught sleeping on that day when the Lord comes. And this is referring to events in that seven year tribulation period for those who will go through that period. Now, the church he mentions in chapter 4, we're not going to take time to go through it, but in chapter 4 he talks about the rapture, how we are caught up in the air before this time. But these are those that will go through that period. But look at what he says in verse 4. He says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then... Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So Paul here is using the, the analogy of night and day, and it's one that we'll see um, later on, a few verses down, when we get, or actually in the next verse, um, in our study in Romans 13. But the idea here is that as sons of light and not of darkness, we are to live in the light, which means that we are to live alert and sober. We're talking about having spiritual knowledge and understanding. We're talking about knowing what is going on around us and being aware of these things. Knowing how the world is. Knowing what God's will is. Knowing what's right and wrong. Understanding God's plans. All of this is encompassed in the idea of being in light and not being in darkness. We understand the things of God. Those in the darkness do not have spiritual understanding. We read in John chapter 1 about light and darkness. When talking about the word, Jesus coming into the world. John says in John chapter 1 verse 4, In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Darkness could not comprehend this light that suddenly came into the world. Christ's coming. Why not? There was no spiritual understanding in the darkness. No illumination of the truth. The light of the Son of God coming into the world shone the spotlight into this pitch black world. And the world's reaction was to run and hide from it because they had no comprehension of it. They didn't understand what this was. One of the characteristics of a believer, we now have spiritual understanding. We have been given the Helper, the Holy Spirit, indwells us to give us knowledge and understanding into the things of God. As we study His Word and we study the things of God, the Holy Spirit is there 
to enlighten us and give us that understanding. Those in the darkness, they're lost. They can't see the truth. In these times, when you talk about light and darkness, we have a little bit different today. But in Paul's day, when you light and darkness, when the sun rose, you got up. When it got dark, you went to sleep, right? There wasn't as much to do in the dark. You couldn't do as much in the dark. For the most part, anything respectable that was done was done during the day. And that's really what we're seeing here. In just a minute, we'll see that we're not supposed to be doing the things of the darkness. But here we're seeing that as sons of day, we should have a spiritual awareness of all that's going on around us. Because we have been given given understanding into the things of God, and we should therefore conduct ourselves in light of that, conduct ourselves appropriately. Too many Christians today are still sleeping. They aren't alert. They don't grow in spiritual understanding. They don't have a tolerance for sitting down and listening to teaching long drawn out sermons or lessons and they want little sound bites of information that might have just a specific relevant information. I want to look for this specific topic and that's all I want to consume. They don't want to take in the entire entirety of God's word. They don't study on their own because they say, well, I haven't gone to school in a long time. I'm, I'm not really a reader and I have this excuse or that excuse. Maybe they're serving in different areas. Maybe they're the kindest people that we know. Maybe they're always ready to lend a hand. But if they aren't keeping alert by preparing themselves through a knowledge and a study of the word of God, then they are truly missing out on all that God has intended for them to know. And worse than that, they put themselves in danger. In danger of being deceived when it comes to false doctrine from false teachers. Turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll just look at this quickly. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is talking about the way that we live, once again, just like we're seeing here in Romans. And one of the first things that he mentions in this chapter is the use of spiritual gifts in the church. But he specifically here talks about the speaking gifts, because he has a point to make with these. If you look at verse 11 of Ephesians 4, he mentions some of these specific gifts. He says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So he lists a few gifts. This isn't an all-inclusive list, but the gifts that he lists here, these are the ones that are primarily given to the church or were primarily given to the church for the communication of God's word. Uh, Apostles and prophets are no longer around. They've ceased, but evangelists and pastor teachers are still around. And so what we see here, and we see what they were for, then starting in verse 12, he says, For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so the speaking gifts are to be used to mature the body of Christ. To bring about growth and maturity and knowledge among those in the church. So that we are equipped for service. And it's that knowledge of the word of God that equips us. But look at what he says then going on in verse 14. He says, as a result, we are no longer to be children. Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. What is the result of having the knowledge of the Word of God? Of being well taught, of being well learned when it comes to God's Word? We're no longer children. We are no longer susceptible to being carried away by this false doctrine and that false doctrine when we hear it. Right? If we don't know the Word of God, we haven't been taught the Word of God, if we don't study the Word of God, then when somebody comes in and has a teaching that just sounds good, we don't know that it's error. We have to know what God's Word says. We have spiritual discernment through the Word of God. That is being awake. We get that through the study of God's Word. 
those who have been gifted to teach it to us through the Holy Spirit who indwells us and gives us understanding is how we get that insight and that understanding. But if we don't regularly study it, if we don't regularly sit under the teaching, then that has no benefit to us. Come back to Romans chapter 13. So we are to be awake. We are to be alert, be sober, constantly on our guard, constantly ready to do what needs to be done in every situation. He says at the end of verse 11, for now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, at first, that sounds like an odd statement, right? We might say, well, what does that mean? When I believed, wasn't I saved? Was, isn't that the point of my salvation? So how could salvation be nearer than when I first believed? Well, he's talking here about the final aspect of our salvation, the completion of our salvation. When we believed, we were saved. That was the beginning of the process. But we haven't yet experienced all that it means to be saved. There are three aspects to our salvation. There's a past, there's a present, there's a future aspect to salvation. At the point in time that we placed our faith in the gospel, we were justified, we were declared righteous. The penalty for our sins was taken care of. That happened in the past. That happened at that point in time. Presently, we are delivered from the power of sin. We are being kept by God. There is a work of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us and matures us and he enables us to live lives that are holy and free from sin. But here, we're talking about that full and final future aspect of our salvation. When we have been taken into the very, or taken away from the very presence of sin, taken out of this world, and we are with our Lord in glory. The day when the judgment of God comes upon the lost, the wrath that Paul talked about way back in chapters 1 and 2 of our study of Romans. And those who have believed are left standing after they've been judged because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That is the full and final aspect of salvation when our salvation is brought to completion. We have not yet experienced all that there is to our salvation, but this is nearer to us now as every day goes by. We get closer and closer to being in the presence of the Lord and completely free from sin in every way. That's part of our motivation. We're nearer today than yesterday. We will be nearer tomorrow than we are today. Our lives should be lived in, lived in anticipation of that event when we will be with our Lord. That should thrill us. That should give us anxious anticipation, knowing that the completion of our salvation is imminent. It's at hand at any time. You, th you think about people being anxiously in anticipation of something. I remember when my kids were little. And we would get excited when Grandpa and Grandma were coming to visit, right? We lived 500 miles apart. So we saw them three or four times a year. They'd help dust. They'd help vacuum. They'd help pick up. They would do all the things that they wouldn't normally do because Grandpa and Grandma were coming, right? And when the day came, they'd be at the front door. We'd have the front door open, and they'd be at the front door. They'd have it open, and we'd be constantly looking to see if they were there, to see if they had arrived yet. They were never more awake, never more alert than at that time when they were anxiously anticipating their arrival. Well, that's how we should be at all times. Expecting the imminent return of our Lord because it's closer every day. He goes on in verse 12. He says, the night is almost gone and the day is near. And here's where we see that same concept that we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5, that of night and day. The world belongs to the night. This verse from, uh, the, or the verse that we looked at from John, or that I mentioned, from John chapter 1, showed the light coming into the darkness. Jesus came into a dark world. A world that is characterized by, by spiritual ignorance and sin. He brought light into the darkness. Now what do we see? He says, the night is almost gone. And once again, we have anticipation 
of what's coming, anticipation of the future. The world isn't going uh, to be under the control of Satan and the darkness forever. But it's not a gradual process, as some believe. Some people look at that and they say, well, the night's almost gone. That means that we need to be working to improve the world so that we drive out the night. That's not how it works. It's not gradually going to get better. The night will change into day when Christ returns to establish his kingdom on the earth. Again, the rapture of the church is something that precedes that event. The day is coming closer. It is near, meaning, again, it is imminent. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's soon, right? We talk about the word imminent. It doesn't mean that it's soon. It's not a measure of time. But as we talked about, it can mean that it can happen at any time. It can happen at any moment. Nothing needs to happen to precede the events being set into motion. That's the imminency aspect of Christ's return. Paul here is saying it's near, but then it's 2,000 years later today, right? Paul said it was near, but now we're 2,000 years later. It still hasn't happened. Time has definitely moved forward, but the imminency aspect of what he's talking about has not changed. It's just as imminent now as it was for Paul. And we need to keep that in mind because some people look at this and say, well, see, Paul said it was near, but now 2,000 years later, it obviously wasn't near. So Paul must have been wrong or he must have had a wrong understanding about those events. But that's not what that indicates. It just means that in God's timings, timing, the events have not yet started, but they will happen just as he said that they will happen. So in light of the imminency of the darkness giving way to the light, the events that will come with Christ's return, what are we to do? He says, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So there's two things that he lists here. The first thing is that we are to lay aside the deeds of darkness. And this idea carries, uh, carries the, the notion of taking off a suit of clothes and putting them away from you. So, so going with our theme here of night and day, we could say, see this as the picture of taking off your pajamas, right? Whatever you sleep in, taking off your pajamas, you get rid of that because that's not what you wear during the day. But you take off what you wear at night in order to prepare yourself for putting on your day clothes, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So what is it that we are to take off? What are those night clothes? The deeds of darkness. Putting off as old clothes those things that are associated with the darkness, with the night. Paul is writing to believers here. We as children of God should be casting away any deeds that would be characterized by the darkness, by spiritual blindness or depravity. And we talked about this back when we were in Romans chapter 6. The things that no longer characterize us are, are seen there that no longer have any power over us, right? We're not to be submitting ourselves to those things. We are to be submitting ourselves to righteousness, right? We are to lay them aside, get rid of them. So what should we put on? The second thing he says is that we are to put on the armor of light. We are to cast aside everything associated with the darkness, but now put on works of light. We put on the armor, the instruments, the weapons of light. And this is a military concept. This is an indicator of the situation that we're in by using this word. As believers living in a world that is characterized by darkness, we are to be shrouded in light, shining forth with the true knowledge of God. And it goes back again to what we talked about early on. There will be a difference in us. We will stand out, right? You have a pitch dark room, say a movie theater, right? You want, and, you, and you wear an LED suit into a movie theater and you turn that on in the middle of a movie. You think people are gonna notice that? Absolutely they're gonna notice that, right? They're gonna be annoyed by it, right? Why is that bright light, why is, he, why is that idiot sitting there with that bright light in the middle of this movie theater? They will definitely notice it. They definitely won't like it. And that's just like the world will not like our suit of righteousness and truth and the things of God. 
We stand out to the world. The idea that this is armor is a reminder that we are in a battle with this world. And therefore, part of our preparation is to have this armor of light. And this is the same type of armor that Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. We won't turn there. I'll I'll just read it. You're probably familiar with this passage. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. We take up the armor of God so that we can stand firm and resist this evil day, this darkness that's around us. For our struggle is against whom? The spiritual forces that control this world, the devil, Satan, and his followers. This is why it is so imperative for us to be alert, to be on guard, because the battle is all around us and it is everywhere. You've probably seen the videos, same videos I've seen of what's going on over in Israel, right? There's all kinds of cell phone videos that people have been sharing. The one that got me was the the music festival where you have these people. You can see parachutes descending as these people are enjoying music and having this party and enjoying this festival. And there's parachutes falling in the background. And they were dancing and partying and having fun, and they were not expecting to be shot at just minutes later. And Israel is probably one of the most battle-ready nations on earth, and these people were caught unaware. Well, in the spiritual sense, it's that same kind of attack that we are to be prepared for, ready for it to come from any angle and at any time. Because as Christians in this world, we are at war with the world. We see the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says, for though, our, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The battle that we are involved in is a spiritual one. It's one that we can't always see. It sneaks up on us. It hits us from unexpected directions. It tries to wear us down. It tries to make us falter. We need to be prepared for it. We need to be dressed for battle at all times in the armor that God provided for us. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, he goes on and he describes the armor. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, again, a couple verses down from where we were earlier, Paul says, but since, verse 8 of chapter 5, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Once again, being of the day being, means being alert. It means being ready for the battle. Do we really live our lives every day prepared for the battle? Are we really alert and dressed in our armor every day? This is what the Christian life is. It's, it's a battle. It's a constant struggle. You know, I, I, I hesitated to, to include the example of what was going on over in Israel, because there was a part of my mind that I thought to myself, I didn't want to belittle what was going on over there by using it just as an example. But I realized it's a perfect example, because what we need to understand is that as serious as that situation is over there, this is just as serious. This is what we need to be prepared for, because this battle is real. We are in a fight, a spiritual fight in this life. And we need to be prepared for it. We live in a world that is under the control of Satan. We live in a world that is opposed to our Lord and to us at every turn. And we should be expecting opposition. We should be expecting that there will be battles and hostility and opposition to us. We sometimes act like the things going on in the world to us were a surprise. The garbage that we see in the movies, on TV, the way that people, nations stand in opposition to the word of God today. We see these things and we scratch our heads and we think, what's going on? Why would they 
be this way. Well, why wouldn't they be this way? This is what's going on. The world is in darkness. It's not in light. We are to shine forth in light. But as anyone that shines a bright light in the face of someone who's in a dark room knows, they don't react kindly to that. They don't like having the bright light shine in their face. Neither do the spiritually ignorant, the spiritually dead of this world. We were once a part of that world. But when we became believers, we switched sides. We are now enemies of the world. In fact, we live in enemy territory. Too often you hear Christians say that they're tired of the struggle, the constant battles. And what happens? They give in. They compromise. They walk away. They start taking off pieces of armor. Well, I'm way too bright. Let me take off this piece and that piece and my helmet If you're truly living the Christian life in this world, the battles won't stop. You're wearing the armor of light. The darkness is going to take notice of that, and you stand out from the rest of the world. In order for you not to stand out, again, you'd have to take off those pieces. Compromise with the world. And when a Christian compromises with the world, it isn't really a compromise, it's a surrender. The world has won that battle. And the true believer is living in opposition to this, uh, to his new nature. A true believer cannot live that way. A true believer will not live that way. And so it goes on in verse 13, back in Romans 13. I don't remember where I left you. But in verse 13, he says, let us behave properly as in the day. The word for behave here is the word for walk. Paul uses this word a lot. He loves to talk about our walk. Um. This is a consistent, ongoing pattern of the character of our life, right? We use it to say our walk with the Lord, our daily walk, right? The way that I walk is the way that I live my life is basically what this is. That's what this is saying. So how are we to walk? How are we to behave properly as in the day? Again, we are sons of the day, right? That's where we belong. That's who we are. So we are to walk as sons of the day. So what does this type of walk look like? We talk about that walk. How do we behave? Well, it looks like just what we've gone through in the last two chapters. All that we've talked about from chapter 12, verse 1 on. That's behaving properly as in the day. Honorably, doing what is right, ongoing in our lives. We don't do what's right once in a while. It should never be a surprise for others. Oh, I didn't expect that guy to help me in that way. I didn't expect them to say something like that. It should never seem out of character for us to do what's honorable. No, we should be known for doing what's right. That's our pattern of life. Someone does wrong to me. I show them kindness in return. That stands out in this world. Other people around me at work are grumbling about something. I'm the one that has a pleasant attitude. That stands out. Others want to make tasteless jokes or use foul language. I refuse to participate in that. That stands out. And sometimes we say, but I I want to fit in. I want to fit in at work. I want to fit in with my neighbors. No, you don't. You shouldn't. That's conforming to the world. Go back to verse 2 of chapter 12. As a child of the day that no longer fits who you are. We are to walk as those in the day, not as those who are in the night. And as he continues on here, he gives us six examples. And he gives three pairs of things that ought to characterize, or or that do characterize the night. Things that should not be characteristic of us as believers. And five of these six things appear in Galatians chapter 5 as works of the flesh. Directly contrasted there with the fruit of the Spirit. The things that the Spirit produces in the believer. And they're presented here related uh, in related pairs as examples. He says, not in carousing and drunkenness. And the word for carousing is just general partying. Was first used back in those these days for parades that would occur after sporting events. But over time the events would get rowdier and rowdier. And we see that today, right? There's not anything different between then and today, right? Uh, I'm always fascinated by you, you, you watch teams that, you know, they're in a championship game and then you see, you know, cameras are in that city and then the team loses and they riot in the streets. 
And then sometimes they show the team that won, and oh, they're all happy, and they're still rioting in the streets. It's like there's just, they're going to riot no matter if their team wins or loses. But it usually starts off as a party, but then it grows into something worse. Well, what usually accompanies those wild parties? Drunkenness, and he has them paired here correctly. You don't usually find an overabundance of soft drinks at these types of things, right? That's not usually where what you find. Usually a bunch of drinks getting out of hand, uh, or a bunch of drunks getting out of hand. They go together. They're characteristic of the children of the night. And as children of the day, we have no part in behavior like this. I've, I've been in situations in years past where there is a... We lived in Denver, in the Denver area, and there were people that would tell us, oh, you've got to go to this section of downtown Denver, the Lodo section of downtown Denver. And I'd say, why? What's there to do there? I'd say, what's there to do there that doesn't involve drinking? Mm. They'd kind of scratch their head at that. They didn't know. They didn't know what was, I mean, they're talking about going to clubs. They're talking about going to parties. They're talking about going to bars, things like that in this area. And I'd be like, if you don't do any of that, what's there to do? They couldn't tell me. I didn't know what to do. They didn't. I didn't know, see any appeal of going down there. And I'm sure that there's probably areas of downtown Omaha that are the same way. But maybe there were things to do, but I didn't know what there were. But these people, their involvement in the downtown party nightlife usually revolved around the clubs and the bars and the carousing and the drunkenness. And that's what it takes to have a good time for many people today. And apparently things haven't changed much since Paul's day. He continues on. The next pair of things he says is not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Sexual promiscuity is an immoral behavior of any kind. It's a, it's a characteristic of the darkness. It's running rampant in our society. Popular shows on TV for years have all been about basically nothing but sexually immoral behavior. It's encouraged, it's celebrated, it's shoved down our throats as something normal and wonderful. I've had conversations with people in the past where, you know, I'm just talking with them and, and they ask me about, you know, our marriage and, and, and I've, in the course of the event of the, the conversation, come to find out that, oh yeah, we never lived together before we were married. And they're like, what? What do you mean? How, they can't even fathom why somebody wouldn't live together before they get married. They just don't understand that. It's just something that is just completely normal to people today. What's going on? These are deeds of darkness in a world that is under the power of darkness. And this is paired with this other word, sexual promiscuity. We also have sensuality. And this word carries with it not only the idea of a sexual sin, but it also carries with it the lack of shame of the person performing the sin. And we are really seeing this one come to the forefront today. Nobody is ashamed of anything anymore. People living together today are not ashamed of that. They're surprised again that not everybody's doing it. Why not? Just a test drive. Many people don't even pretend like it's a preparation for marriage anymore. That's just what they're going to do. Homosexuality, another one that used to be in the closet. Now you can't speak about or speak out against their immoral practices. There's no shame. They have pride events. We have a whole month that is supposedly the pride event for homosexuality. Men dressing up as women today. I saw a headline the other day about a guy dressing up uh, in a dress for an event, and he was walking the red carpet in an Oscars tie, you know, Oscars type ball gown, and the headline was noting how fabulous she looked in the dress and this person had just won the woman of the year award there's no shame there's pride there's celebration of sin today where does it stop when you go back 50 years and these types of sexual sins had been taboo at one point shameful now you try to find a tv show that doesn't have at least one of these sins involved in it in some way or you try to read or watch news that doesn't have this shoved in your face in some way. The deeds of darkness aren't done in the shadows or behind closed doors anymore. They are done openly. They are done proudly. They are done with hearty approval from those in the world. And they don't even hide it anymore. 
And what's the danger for us as believers? It's not that these things go on in the world. Again, that shouldn't even really shock us that these things are going on. We shouldn't expect anything more from this world. But the danger is that since society says these things are okay and that they're acceptable, we as believers might try to buy into that. Or we might try to get, we might start to get tired of the battle against it. People say things have changed and we need to go with the flow. Society's different today. It is what it is. We don't do it intentionally, but it starts to creep in. It starts to become so commonplace that we barely notice it anymore. We lose our attentiveness. It has snuck up on us and caught us while we weren't prepared. What is that a symptom of? When we let things sneak up on us, it's a symptom of being asleep. Just what Paul was warning us about in verse 11. It is already the time for us to be awake. That's again why it's essential for us to be prepared, to be alert and be on guard. He lists one more pair of things here, not in strife and jealousy. And I think we need to be careful with this one. He lists this one last, or these two last. Because compared to the others, our tendency might be to think, oh, that's not too bad. Strife is conflict that comes from self-centeredness. Jealousy is a longing for what others have. These have the tendency to hit closer to home. These have a tendency to be something that we would more readily accept in than the others. These could creep into the church and be excused as not much of a big deal. Well, you know, I'm not going to drunken parties. I'm certainly not involved in immorality or sexual sins, but have you had a conflict with someone recently? Have you been jealous of someone recently? More likely is that one of these things is true in churches. You, see, you sometimes hear of churches that, I'm, I'm not saying that we're doing this here, but churches that have the center aisle, and you've got families on one side and families on the other side that can't stand each other. And they're in churches. And if you sit on the wrong side, well, these people won't talk to you if you sit over there, and these people won't talk to you if you sit on the, on the wrong side. But there's that strife and conflict even amongst church members. Is that what the believer's life is to be characterized by? Having strife and conflict with someone else, being jealous of those around us? No, not when we look at all the other things that we've seen along the way, loving them as we should, considering them to be more important than ourselves, serving them with our spiritual gifts, and on and on and on. Now, these are no better than the others that he's mentioned. They can even be worse. They can be more destructive for the way that the church can operate as a, hell, as a, as a whole. Excuse me. They are deeds of darkness that are not to be put away from us. Of all these things, they may be things that we have been saved out of. They may be more difficult for one person to resist than for the other. Yet as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been freed from the power that these things may have over us. We saw that again back in Romans chapter 6. Freed from slavery to every kind of sin. Free now to be slaves of righteousness. But how do we keep them away from us? Look at verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be manifesting his character within our own lives, submitting ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. This is the same concept that we see in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn over with me there to Ephesians chapter 5. We were in this chapter last week. And the flow there is really much the same as what we're seeing here in this chapter as well. It goes into a little more detail there. But if you remember, last week we saw in the beginning of Ephesians 5, we looked at the first two verses, where he said, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. There was the love aspect. We are to imitate God in our behavior. 
And from verses 3 through 6, he then talks about deeds of darkness, immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, silly talk. He gives a laundry list of things that are not even to be named among us, he says. Very much like what we're seeing in Romans 13. But now come down to verse 7. When talking about those who, who would walk in those deeds, he says, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you are formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Again, it's the same thing. We are not to be caught up in deeds of darkness. But we are to walk as children of the light, because that is who we are. Now skip down to verse 15. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk. Again, there's Paul's word for behave, walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit, submitting to the control of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is the same thing that we're seeing in Romans chapter 13. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Being filled with the Spirit. Even putting on the armor of light, which he talked about two verses earlier. It's all about us submitting to the control of the Lord in our lives. Walking, behaving in the proper way as his children. How is that possible? We saw that when we were back in Romans chapter 8 where Paul said in the first two verses, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Who is our authority? Who is our law? The Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us and makes it possible to follow after the will of God and resist the temptations to sin. That's the provision that God has made for us. What he has given to us. The ability through the power of the spirit to resist all temptation by submitting to him in obedience. As believers in Jesus Christ, we do not have to sin ever. We don't. We will because we fail. But we do not have to submit to sin. The power is there. The ability is there. We just have to take hold of it. Do it. Walk in it. But there's a second thing here as well. Back in Romans 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit ourselves to him. But also make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Simply put. Make no plans for sin. Give it no opportunity in your life. If alcohol, you mentioned drunkenness earlier, if alcohol, alcohol is a problem for you, don't keep it in the house. Don't go to the bar. Don't go to parties. Don't go where it is. If sexual sins are a problem, don't give them opportunity. Don't get into compromising positions. Don't turn on the TV if that's an issue for you. If I don't have opportunity to sin, if I don't make time for it, if I don't keep certain things around me, if I don't go into certain places, then sin can't take a hold of me. I give it no provision in my life. I've never heard of anyone who was attacked by alcohol. Have you? Oh, it just came out of the cabinet. I had it locked up. It was secure, but it just broke out of the cabinet and it forced itself down my throat. I've never heard of that. That does not happen. Right? I've never heard of anyone who accidentally fell into an adulterous relationship with someone. Provision had to be made for it. Right? We are children of the day. We walk in the light. This means that we live in obedience to our Lord. We put aside all the deeds of darkness and we prepare ourselves for battle. We stay alert. We put on the full armor of God and we keep the things of the darkness away from us. That's God's plan for the believer. We are to live this way in anticipation of the coming of our Lord. Because we don't know when he'll come. If Christ were to come today, would you be surprised? Would that shock us? 
Would there be things that you'd wished you could have gotten rid of? Would there be things that you'd wished you'd gotten to, but just hadn't found the time to yet? The day is at hand. Let us behave properly within the day. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you and we give you praise for this opportunity to be in your word once again. And Lord, we thank you for your provisions that you've made for us as your children. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for uh, indwelling uh, power that we have through him in order to resist these temptations, in order to live in this dark world. Pray, Lord, that we would be honoring to you with everything that we do, that we would be behaving, we would be behaving properly, uh, that we would be walking in a way that brings glory to you. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of the gospel, and we pray that you would help us to be sharing that with others as they see a difference in us, as they see light shining from us, that we would explain to them what that light is all about. We pray, Lord, that you would just give us that boldness and that confidence that we need in order to witness to others. I thank you, Lord, again for our time here. I pray that you would be with us in the next hour as well, Lord, that, that as we worship you, as we as we sing songs of praise, as we hear the word being taught once again, I pray that that time would be one that is honoring to you. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, that we would be encouraged, emboldened, and strengthened, Lord, to go out and serve you with all that we do. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.